devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full, always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul's instructions for us in terms of our relationships. just want us to have a brief recap to where we are going for the sake of some um, visitors here this morning. This is the point that we've made. When you come to chapter 3 of Colossians, there is a different tone. There is, there is a switch, a deliberate change of emphasis. We, we, we put it like this. Paul moves from explaining what the gospel is, now to applying what the gospel means. Let me just say it like this. It's a little bit like if you've been to the doctors and he's written a prescription. He says, now, this is for you and this is how you are to use it. Uh, three times a day or whatever, as is appropriate. It's not enough just to have a prescription. You need to use it. You need to apply it. And what this is now is application, applying it in our interpersonal relationships, where there is often friction and conflict. And we've seen the specific areas where Paul has a deliberate progression. Okay? So what is he doing? He's trying to describe what he considers the real, it's unfortunate almost to say that, but nevertheless, what the real Christian is like. And so this deliberate progression, you see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, the Christian and Jesus. That's absolutely crucial. You can't be a Christian until you become one. You may not know time, date, place and event, but you know that something's happened in your life. And everything revolves around that. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. With all of the pressure that comes in upon us all the time, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. It's a salutary reminder. And then secondly, the Christian and the local church. So, you've come to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do you express that? You express that in this strange thing that is called the local church. Where... God, in his grace and the Spirit working so powerfully in people's lives, brings together a, an extremely wide, diverse company of people who would have nothing to do with each other for the most part other than that they love Jesus. And I think we would all admit, if we were to look around at each other, we would say this is a ragbag of humanity, and in that, God, in his infinite grace, is bringing us together. It's a wonderful thing. But it's also a very challenging thing. We don't relate to each other like if, uh, the, the, the classic illustration of, of the, the, the snooker table. 
Beautiful, lots of colours. Maybe you could say if you did a, an ecclesiastical spin, highly symbolic, the reds and the, so on and so forth. But the whole point is this, that we do not ricochet against each other. We don't just bounce off one another. We don't delight in keeping relationships at a distance, superficial, how are you, fine, and everything's all right. To pretend to be in church like that is to grieve the spirit. But equally, if you are going to relate meaningfully, you are going to have to put up with tension and difficulty. It cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. And then, thirdly, the Christian and his family. So, it's personal, it's, it's corporate. Now you move into the privacy of the home. What is life like when you go home from church and you shut the door to the public? What is it like? The great preacher Spurgeon said there were some people in his congregation who were angels in church and devils at home. Isn't that a terrible thing? That was the 19th century as well. We should repent of that. We should. And so it's, we are told that we are to live in such a certain way that our children particularly ask the right questions. They don't ask, why is daddy always shouting? Why is mummy always crying? They don't ask those questions. They ask, why is Sunday so important? Why do you read the Bible so often? Why is it that you are so forgiving? In other words, we live such lives in such a way that our children ask certain questions. Do you see the point? Now that's a powerful witness to an unbelieving world. Where, by the way, women had a raw deal. And we say, we are equal, but different. And then you come to the Christian and work. And that's a, that's a big ask, isn't it? Where you rub shoulders with people who are so cynical, people who have no time for the church. You say, there's lots of hypocrites there. And look, they're always arguing and fighting. All that sort of thing. And you have to work with people who think like that. And it isn't easy. But then the last one, and this you see the progression. That being a Christian is not a private love affair with Jesus and, and I'm not going to do anything else. You take the risk of belonging to the church. You rub shoulders, you grow, you mature. You want to be consistent in your family. You want your children to have a taste of the Lord Jesus. You want your work to be a witness. And now, what about our communities? I think I prefer the, the heading, although our heading now, we're coming to it, is, uh, is can God really change my street? Um, I think the better title would be The Christian and Outsiders. And that almost sounds like a bit of us and them. But nevertheless, in verse 5, Paul says, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, which seems to imply, not least, that we are, we are in a community, that we are not exclusive, that we're not the sort of people who don't mix with people, that the church isn't an escape culture. It is a culture that helps us to go back into our communities and become salt and light where God has placed us. Okay, then. So we're looking at verses 2 to 60. But you see how this develops. What we consider in, in this, the, the broader question, and it, and it comes like this. How do we relate to the wider community? Some modern writers would say, you can't ask that question. There is no community out there. Ours is a culture of individualism. And people are not particularly interested in getting involved, in doing anything. However, I think the question still stands, how do we relate to the wider community? What can we do personally to make sure that the outsider will hear about Jesus? 
By the outsider, we, don't, we mean people who either have given up on church, who are quite cynical, or people who are not interested in the Christian faith, or people who say that prayer is a waste of time, and, and all that sort of thing. Well, I think there are two themes, not so much two answers, that try to comment on the question, how do we relate to the wider community? The first is this, and this surprised me. If I was preparing this sermon as a talk, I would have immediately said, well, you know what we need to do? We need to get an alpha group together. We need to do door-to-door -door visitation. We need to follow up with Christianity Explored. We need... uh, that's what we do. And that's a great deal of what we actually do here. But that's not the starting point. Those things are good and excellent. Surprise, surprise. Two things. First, the importance of prayer. Would, would, you have, would you have put that on top of the list? The importance of prayer, and secondly, the importance of wisdom. Be wise in the way you live towards the outsider. So we've got two sentences for the sermon this morning. The first is speaking to God about people. Let's start with him. After all, it's his church, isn't it? It's about him, not us. We speak to God about people. And then, hopefully, God willing, by his grace, we are ready to speak to people about God. So, verses 2 to 4. Speaking to God about people. We might have thought these courses on evangelism and, and so forth, and I am not criticizing them. We are committed to them. However, the starting point is, is, is the factor. A constant characteristic of the New Testament was its emphasis on being devoted to prayer, the Cinderella of the church, because we live such frenetic lives. And we've come now to actually justify that we are too busy. I want to give you a sentence. It is in a prayerless church that the devil has most disruptive and divisive presence. But that's not even good enough either. Let's change that. It is in a prayerless life of a believer that the devil is most disruptive and most divisive. We give him room. Scripture say don't Give no room for the devil. Don't let him have a foothold into your life. Do you see that? So we haven't even considered how far away is that from the community? Well, in one sense, light years, but actually much closer than what we think. For as we relate well to God, we shall see we relate better to each other. So, verse 2 is a general prayer. And the this is so vital, isn't it? Look, here it is. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. Being watchful. Be vigilant. Be on your guard. Not sleepy. Be so aware of the dangers that lurk that you are resolute and you are clear. We had... Tom Warner here, didn't we? A young soldier last Sunday. 
And if you were to talk to him, how often it is that when you're on duty, that you are on duty. And it's not just about you as a soldier. It's about your colleagues and your comrades and the people that you are with. And it's not good enough for Christians to say, well, you know, I, I, I can do this and I can do that. No, you can't. You are part of a team. That's the point. And, and the culture of, 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 of crass individualism all the time makes us forget that we are a praying people, that we are a body. And, and we are only as strong as the weakest member. And that's quite a frightening analogy, isn't it? So we're to be watchful. Jesus said to his disciples, didn't he? Stay here. Watch. Watch and pray. And he used a, a statement as he looked at his disciples whom he loved that resonates with every one of us. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Don't we know it? Don't we know it? Of course we do. And when he came back, they were not watchful, but sleeping. General prayer, all that that implies. But then with that, we are to be thankful. Don't be heavy, don't be morose, don't be miserable. You see, what you're to be is to be watchful and thankful, as it is in verse 2. Go, go through life. When you go through uh, Waitrose, and I'm amazed how many people Hannah meets at Waitrose, and I often wonder whether some of you folk try to avoid each other down the aisles and only to come face to face the other side. Okay, you don't do that, I'm sure. I know Hannah doesn't, because she says, do you know who I saw? Do you know what I... Have, on a Monday morning, a gratitude attitude. Have it. Have it. Life is hard. Times are difficult. Don't just sort of wallow in self-pity that things haven't gone the way that, you, that you've missed out on, on your promotion and you've been dealt with badly and all of that sort of thing. And, and it's interesting that Paul wants to, and this is so terribly personal, he wants to give them a role model. And he says, you know, a member of the church at Colossae, his name is Epaphras. And look at chapter 4 and verse 12. He says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, He's a Colossian. And a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. What's he doing? He is always wrestling in prayer for you. That you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. If you want to pray for your fellow believers, without getting all complicated, take those three things. Look around you and say, how should I pray? I don't know. Okay, use that. It's a good role model. I'm sure Epaphras is not perfect, but it's a good start, isn't it? There you are. How should I pray for my fellow believer? I want to pray like this. I want to pray that they may stand firm. It might be a moral issue. It might well be that somebody's going to compromise their marriage and you say, I want you to stand firm in the will of God. And it may be that people are immature. So you say, Lord, would you mature them a bit more? And people are, have lacked their assurance. They're not sure. Maybe they don't think that they are a believer. Make them fully assured. That's a wonderful prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a good role model. Be thankful. But there's just one comment on this as, as, we, as we move on, and it's this. Prayer in itself can no more exist without praise than true praise without prayer. The one fuels the other. We may be good at asking prayer, but perhaps not so good at thank you prayer. It may be that we are like that. 
And it's a hard thing in, in, in prayer meetings or in our private prayers to keep a sense of balance. We can be so overwhelmed with what's happening to us that actually we've gone a whole week and we never even thank God for his goodness to us. Prayer can no more exist without praise than true praise without prayer. The one fuels the other. And moving on quickly. So that's general prayer. And then specific prayer. Verses 3 to 4, where, you, where he says this, look, and pray for us, and this is, it's really down to what you can call specificity. Look at that. You can't be more specific than this. Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. What a contradiction. Here is Paul, the great apostle, Sent as the missionary to the Gentile people. And what's God do? What is he doing? I'm in jail. Thanks very much. And if you haven't faced contradictions in your life and your faith, I suggest that it's because you're actually just sleeping and not doing anything. And it's hard sometimes. So be persistent. Be determined. Be resolute. We all know how easy it is to be distracted. I, I wrote this down, and there you are, and I thought, should you really say this? Well, I'll say it. There it is. I suspect that some Christians have actually given up on prayer secretly. You wouldn't say it publicly. But actually you say, you know, the things that I prayed for, I may as well not have bothered. Now, you wouldn't want to go public on that. Or maybe you do. I don't know. Or maybe I'm exaggerating. Some people have given up on prayer. And perhaps that's why we're not really, truly relating to our community. We'll have a look at two psalms very quickly. Psalm 13. This is what uh, I call the unlucky psalm. Look at this. The unlucky psalm. So one of the psalms people will read with their fingers crossed, that sort of thing. Um, psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? This is a legitimate prayer, by the way. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O oh Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. My foe will rejoice when I fall, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Yes, stay in the first part, but be sure you, you progress to the second, because prayer and praise the one fuels the other. Turn to Psalm 73, which in my view I think is one of the greatest psalms in the whole book, in my view, from my experience. And I would rate it that much. And just very quickly then, let's have a look at this. I'm, I'm, you, we're looking at the sentence, and it's a very serious one to say at church from the pulpit. Some people, Christian people, good people, have given up on prayer. Well, Asaph was one of them. Psalm 73. Here's, a, here's the statement. If you like, here is his confession of faith. Look at it. Surely, God is good to Israel, his people, and to those who are pure in heart. There it is. He believes that. Okay? He's good to them, but he's not very good to me. 
I'm not questioning their faith. I am questioning mine. And I'm questioning God's providence in my life. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. And look, what is he saying? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked at life. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. No, 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 no cancer in their lives. No, no, no sudden disease. Plenty of children. Plenty of money. Lots of holidays. A great life. And from their callous hearts, verse 7, comes iniquity. The evil conceit of their minds knows no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. I don't understand that. Why is, why is it that bad people enjoy such good things and good people are enduring bad things? That's his problem. And then he concludes about himself. He looks, look at verse 13. We, we, he says, surely... What's my conclusion? Well, in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I would speak like this, and I would undermine other people's faith. If I go around complaining and whinging to other fellow believers, what good would it do them? So I keep quiet. And then, verse 21, when my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was as senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What a confession. That's what he was like. Prayer out of the window. Way out. Yet. Yet. Verse 23. I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards you will take me into glory. Actually. Whom have I in heaven but you? Question. It's a rhetorical question. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then, you, 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 you highlight in your Bible, where, how does it begin? Verse 2, but as for me, how does it end? Verse 23, but as for me. And he's turned a full circle. And maybe he's got a higher view of prayer now than he's ever had before. You see it, it's nothing new about that. We should be open and honest about that. We have to pray generally, we have to pray specifically. And what is, what is the prayer as you come back to Colossians 4? It is this, interestingly. Pray for an open door. Pray for open minds, because people are so prejudiced. And pray for open lips, because people often will say nothing spiritual. Pray. Open mouths in prayer for the gospel. Open mouths for the preacher to proclaim the good news. Let's sum it up then. Don't you think it's a surprise? I'm really surprised at the sermon. I really am. And it's this. That the two things most neglected today among believing people, church people, are the very things that he emphasizes. What a surprise. What is it? Prayer and preaching. People who say, young people say, preaching? Prayer? I want entertainment. We, we, if we're going to keep the young people, surely, well, that's what we need to do. I'm not so sure. Speaking to God about people, of course there's a place for relating and being contemporary and all of that. And we don't live in the 18th century where everything was, was good and fine. We live in the 21st century where, where there's pressure and difficulty. But nevertheless, it's worth saying, isn't it? 
Well, we'll move on quickly the second. If that's speaking to God about people, now let's speak to people about God. You have to get down to doing that as well. Um, I went with Charles Wallace to Oxford to hear Lord Coggan uh, on commemorating, I think it was 100 years of the Bible Reading Fellowship. And uh, Lord Coggan holds up some small paperbacks and he said, this is the problem with the church. He's actually referring to the Church of England. It could be any church. Christianettes, uh, uh, yes, Christianettes, he called some people. Like mini sermons and mini books, mini on prayer, mini on evangelism. And then he says, most Anglicans are like Arctic rivers, frozen at the mouth. And I don't know if that was on his script, and I've quoted him many times before. But hey... Baptists are not very sharp, far short of it either. Arctic rivers, frozen at the mouth. Speak to people about God. You'll be surprised that they may actually be glad that you do. That you would be surprised. So verses 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we know to answer everyone. Just very quickly, three quick points. First, be wise. Be wise. I, I guess some people have given up on evangelism because some people have been extremely unwise and have not helped the cause at all. There are some people who speak down to people with an air of superiority. And all that is done is to push people away. I don't know if you listened to uh, the morning service this morning. The, the Bishop of London, uh, Richard Chartis, was speaking and he quoted T.S. Eliot and he said this. Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Interesting phrase. It's a quote from T.S. Eliot. We, we accumulate. We, we, we're information overload. But surely, knowledge is the right, uh, wisdom is the right use of knowledge, not the abuse of it. Be wise. Don't be unwise, in other words. Be, be as consistent as it's possible to be, and where you're not, be willing to admit it. You are not perfect. Be wise in the way you live. Be wise in the things you say. Because evangelism, and the, I'm, sh I'm sure... Evangelism is not a technique. I suppose the older I get, the more disillusioned I am with these crash courses which give us the right answers. The ABC to evangelism. It is not a technique. And this isn't a wisdom that makes you clever. It actually makes you clear. When you speak people, strangely, they understand you. I understand that. You talk to somebody who's lost a loved one, you say, you know, I've been there too, and you know what, I, I'll pray for you. How you pray? Because you've been there, first of all. Not you pray like as if you're a saint and, and, and you're above other people's heartaches. It is not a technique. It is not being clever. It is being clear. It's more like the book of Proverbs, which is sometimes referred to as the book of wisdom because it is, it is practical wisdom and it is personal wisdom 
And, and it, it's crystallized in verses that some of us know so well from Sunday school days, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Be wise. Secondly, be gracious. Be gracious. Look at verse 6 now. It's quite specific, isn't it? Let your conversation be always. If you're having a good day, let it be always full of grace. Full of grace. No Christian should ever be graceless. There was a girl in college, I've not seen her for 37 years or more. She changed her name. She had a horrid family upbringing. And she named her, changed her surname to Graceless. And that's what she was known as, Rosemary Graceless. She personified it. She, and she had massive problems. But, but she, 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 she was working things through and she was on a long pilgrimage. And it wasn't her fault with the family she was born into. But even for her, I would say, even if she made it her name, you should never be graceless. No matter how hard life is, no matter how difficult things become, be gracious. Always. It's a big ask sometimes, isn't it, when the pressure is on. Of course, we know that there are examples of people who are unwise in the way that they behave and ungracious in the way that they talk. But the point is for the sermon, if that is so, may it never be said about you or me. And if it is, then can we truly repent and start again and ask for more grace? We are to be wise, we are to be gracious, we are to be clear, not clever. And finally, and I was this is a bit risky, we are to be spicy. I like the Spice Girls. There you are, what a confession. <laughs> but it was short-lived. You, you know, they, they had their day and they've gone. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about food that isn't bland. We, we've learned a lot. If you go to uh, restaurants now, how they spice things up. Some people like their food bland for the one reason. They've always had it like that. That's true. And some people are like that in lots of ways. And their, their reason... You know, I remember visiting a lady. She's in heaven now. She was a f one of long-standing member here. And I said to her about a cup of coffee. She said, I don't like coffee. I said, why is that? She said, I've never tasted it. <laughs> I won't name her because her, her relations are here this morning. But you see what I... That is absolutely true. Whether it's your palate or your spiritual palate... Don't, in other words, let's put it another way then. Don't be bland. Are you, are you a boring Christian? That you're, you're, you're nitpicking and majoring on minors? Or can you see the big picture of, of what a wonderful thing is to talk to people about this good and gracious God who sent His Son to be our Saviour? Don't be bland. Don't be boring. Don't be insipid. Don't be dull. Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so dull? Don't you understand? So you need to say to people, pass the salt. Pass the salt. 
And it's seasoning, isn't it? It's the seasoning of the Holy Spirit. Make Jesus then palatable. Make him palatable. Get people to want to say, I want to taste and I want to see that he's as good as you say he is. How would they do that? Not by hearing this sermon, but by hearing you and me as we talk to people. So that more and more people will say, I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Is he as good as you say he is? And you reply, much better. Much. Trust me. How do we relate to the wider community? By relating to the Lord Jesus much better and relating to each other much better and more meaningful as God's grace overflows into the community.